This podcast contains descriptions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Bunker. I'm Seth Tevel. Today I'm joined by the journalist Yoan Grillo, who spent much of the last two decades based in Mexico City, where he joins us now. Yoan is the author of the acclaimed book Blood Gun Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels, which takes a searing look at the spread of guns through the criminal underworld. Yoan, thanks for joining us in the bunker. Great to be here, Zeph. Yoan, what first got you interested in guns and the drugs war? So I arrived in Mexico, first of all, in the year 2000, started reporting in 2001, and was immediately captured by these drug cartel figures. I mean, initially, it was slightly romantic and kind of exotic seeing these big, you know, mysterious players like El Chapo, El Mayo, who had songs written about them and were making billions of dollars and had, you know, pet tigers and lions and so forth. I found myself over the years, though, covering a humanitarian catastrophe, covering things I couldn't have imagined, mass graves with more than 200 bodies, 49 people dumped on a road, firefights with 500 gunmen against 2,000 uh, members of security forces. So I really started getting into trying to understand what was happening here. How come the drug trade criminality was destabilizing the country? Mm. And one of the reasons behind that became very clear was this flood of weapons from the United States to these cartels. They were no longer like gang members with shaved heads and tattoos and fighting with pistols. These were paramilitary organizations fighting with AK-47s, AR-15s, grenades, 50 calibers and so forth. Now, for a long time, I started doing stories early on, 2004, five about the guns coming from the United States. Um, but for a long time, I thought, well, what can I really say about this? Do I really want to dive into this issue in the United States of the Second Amendment, which is such a big thing there? And what can I really say about it? And then in 2017, I had a very good interview with a gun trafficker in prison in Mexico who explained to me how he was trafficking firearms from the United States and how he was buying you know, many, many AR-15 rifles with no paperwork whatsoever, no paper trail. So I thought, well, that's interesting. Went to, to follow where he was buying, went to start going to a gun shows and taping conversations with people and realized what was happening. There's a lot to this question and that many gun owners, many Second Amendment enthusiasts, many conservatives are actually not on board with the idea of how guns are being sold so massively to these very, very violent cartels. Yeah, and the the figures you present are pretty stark, with guns being the most popular way of killing people today, and someone being shot somewhere in the world every couple of minutes. What can you tell us about the Iron River of guns? So the Iron River is especially used, or I use it and others use it, for these firearms going from the United States to Mexico. Although really this is part of you know many iron rivers and, and iron pipelines and kind of waterways of these guns flowing in many places. Particularly between the United States and Mexico, you see an estimation of more than 200,000 firearms every year um, illegally going from the US to Mexico. And these are some of the most violent criminals in the world and uh, are firearms, including AR-15s, AK-47s and 50 calibers. But you also see illegal guns flowing around, you know, around the world. So you see guns from the US retail market turning up in more than 120 countries as far afield as the Philippines. 
Um, and then you see other trafficking routes for legal guns in Western Europe. You see guns going from, you know, the old communist countries and flying around Western Europe. There's firearms flowing in and out of Ukraine right now, in and out of Syria and in many places. And very much not all guns are created equal. So what was the tipping point for the flood of guns like the AK-47, the AR-15 into the drugs war? And why has that been such a game changer? So you, you, you saw in there was a assault rifle ban between 1994 and 2004 in the United States. That expired in 2004 and it allowed much more easy access to these AR-15, AK-47 type rifles. The AK-47 is manufactured uh, mostly in Eastern Europe or China and different countries, imported to the United States, sold as a sporting rifle, supposedly, bought to the United States and then taken to Mexico. That really changed the game in Mexico because when you had people fighting with these guns, AK-47s, AR-15s, they were able to battle security forces and overwhelm police, soldiers. Often they recruit police and soldiers to their side, uh, but there was that pressure of violence uh, or what's known as the um, silver or lead, you know, for the soldiers, they want a lead of a AK-47 bullet or the silver of a bribe. Um, but also the amount of you know innocent bystanders you see. I've been at many, many crime scenes here in Mexico um, where you see these people spraying, they buy an AK-47 semi-automatic in the US, convert it to fully automatic, and they'll spray 500 bullets at their target and they'll kill, you know, the pregnant woman driving in the car behind, the guy selling tacos on the side of the street. So the, the level of death and destruction just increased exponentially. Looking at the supply side, why are so many guns sourced from the US, particularly legal guns that are sold quite legitimately? So for the Mexican cartels, the easiest source for them is the United States. I mean, you can buy a huge range of weapons there um, and buy them fairly cheaply. Um, and it's you know the vicinity to Mexico, particularly a lot of the fighting between the cartels, is right next to the U.S. border because that's where the cartels are fighting over the market to sell illegal drugs to Americans or the market to traffic human beings into the United States, human smuggling into the United States. The access is very easy. Now, it's illegal, supposedly, but they can get around this very easily by two main methods. The first is by paying somebody with a clean record to buy the guns. So, you know, somebody's got a, no, no, no criminal history there and they go and buy firearms. Uh, and there's really prolific straw buyers. There's cases I looked at where you get a single individual who's going and he's buying more than 700 guns, spending half a million dollars. Uh, and it's kind of incredible and mind-boggling, again, from a basic law enforcement perspective, how that is happening and there's no alarm bell. You go shop after shop after shop just keep on buying another AR-15. And in cases where people are going and buying bulk amounts of weapons, which is so suspicious, somebody walking in the shop and saying, I'll have 10 identical AK-47s, please. Why would they need them? Or there's case of people who have bought more than 500 guns in single sales. And again, it's like how, why, in, in any circumstance, would a law-abiding citizen need that? The second uh, big method is there's this loophole, sometimes called the private sale loophole, where if someone's a private collector of guns, they don't need to require any paperwork or any background check. Like if I was a private collector of old records, I could sell you some of my records and I wouldn't need to have a, a license to sell them. And the same kind of idea with guns. But there's people abusing that, and I saw this very clearly in the gun shows, 
and there's records of this. People are actually use, abusing that loophole to buy new guns and sell them to criminals knowing that they can't buy guns legally. Uh, and, you know, I saw that with my own eyes very, very blatantly. And there's operations by the, the gun police, the ATF, where they go undercover and take people and they say to them, well, you know, I, I can't really buy guns. I'm a convicted criminal. And the people say, oh, well, don't kill anybody, kind of joke about this. And so there's, there's people abusing that, and it's another way to get large amounts of firearms. Let's say you're a drug baron, or let's say you're working within a drug cartel. What are the main obstacles? I mean, is it cost? Is it um, numbers or, or what? Are there many obstacles to getting hold of guns? Very few. I, th- I think this is the crazy thing about this is how easy they've made this. Um the, the you know and you look at you know they showed this in the trial of El Chapo where he they had logs of them saying uh, two thousand AK forty sevens and people just go and pick them up from the United States from shops uh, and take them to Mexico and and these that, that's basically a private army a private army yeah absolutely paramilitary organizations and and you can see videos of this where you have uh, literally hundreds of guys with you know with these guns metal helmets. The bloodshed they unleashed down here with these weapons is unbelievable. I mean, it is not only bad guys killing bad guys. There's entire families being wiped out. I mean, there's horrific stories and testimonies I find talking to, you know, mothers who have seen these armed groups who are fighting in the cities storm into their houses and take away, you know, their, their, their son in front of them and they can't do anything and take him away to, you know, maybe ask for a kidnapping ransom. They're not even given back, just kill him or maybe use the person they've kidnapped to force them to do stuff. So, you know, really horrific humanitarian cost to this that I think many people are unaware of, you know, really what this means to to Mexico. And and you write in the book about gunonomics and the trade, not just between guns and money, but guns and drugs. Can you elaborate a bit more about that? When trying to understand this black trade in firearms, trying to understand how it works and and the value of these guns, um, so you see that kind of suddenly how these guns will suddenly rise in price. So this AK-47, which can they can buy it in the in the shop in the United States for seven hundred dollars, and then they can kind of take it over the border and sell it for a couple of thousand dollars, and then they can take it further south, particularly when there's a big war happening in a certain state in Mexico, like Michoacan or Zacatecas, and suddenly it's worth five thousand dollars. Then you can also see how different things affect this, like. If a gun has been used in a very high-profile crime, um, it's considered, they could say, it's been burned here. So it's like economically would be a devalued product, and they'll sell that suddenly very cheaply. What, like a burner phone almost? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And that then has a secondary painful cost that lots of guns are then resold, and then you know young school kids get their hands on firearms um, that they're buying off kind of older gang members they know and so forth, and these are kind of burned weapons they might use them in, in shootings on the street. And so you get teenagers caught up in this kind of violence. You look at the drug trade and the illegal gun trade, and they're so connected in so many ways. So, I, you know, I say these are like two venomous plants wrapped around each other. You know, you see that, you know, the, the, the exchange of that and you see from a, a street corner in Baltimore, Maryland, where somebody is selling drugs and then these guys will come in from Virginia and they'll bring in some guns and say, can I, say you know exchange these guns for some heroin and the drug dealer will be okay fine and we'll sell what he considers a low value amount of heroin for more guns and that guy will then take it back to virginia and sell it for a higher amount you see this in colombia where you have the farc this uh uh, guerrilla group 
And they, they um, manufacture a lot of cocaine, uh, buying coca leaves from farmers. They create that cocaine and then they exchange that for firearms, both with the Mexican cartels bringing firearms down and with other South American organized crime groups. So you see this constant kind of uh, bartering and exchange between drugs and guns. And who profits the most from the gun trade? I mean, you don't need to name individuals, but what kind of people? The illegal gun trade. You see the, the gun traffickers and these people like the, the guy interviewed in prison in Ciudad Juarez who are buying the guns in the United States and trafficking them down and selling them uh, here in Mexico. He was actually paying a quota to the cartel. And that's often how these cartels really work is they like oversee different criminal activities and charge a percentage. So he was paying a quota to the cartel for the right to take guns into Mexico, and he was selling guns to the cartel's hitmen. And that's important because we tend to think of um, drugs cartels primarily as criminal organisations, but just as much their business organisations. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the cartels are very extremely profitable organisations. That's They're in this for money, and there's billions to be made in, in, in various trades, and they'll, they'll see whatever makes money. In some ways, they act as a kind of government over criminal activities, charging tax and, and, and providing protection for these crime groups. Now, in the United States, you then see, you know, these straw buyers who are like, you know, regular guys or petty criminals who are paid. Now, traditionally, they've been paid very small amounts of money. Uh, and it's things like $100 to go and buy a rifle, $50 for a handgun, $500 for maybe one of the bigger 50 cals. And the reason being is because there's basically been very little consequences. There was one guy and he was caught buying 10 AK-47s for a very violent cartel called the Setas. He was an Iraq war veteran, um, going hard time smoking marijuana. And, and, and the guy he bought marijuana from told him to go and buy these guns, gave him 600 bucks for 10, gu- 10 guns. One of them was used to kill an American agent in Mexico. That's kind of why we know about it. And he was given probation. So even when someone's kind of involved in pretty heavy crime, they're buying you know, firearms for a cartel, you know it's very violent, there's no consequences. Now that has changed a bit with a, with a change to the law now. We'll see if that's enforced and they suffer more consequences. And then you have the gun shops. 90% of gun sellers in the United States don't sell any crime guns. It's only the 10% who end up selling these. And of that 10%, half will sell 90% of the crime guns. So you have a few gun shops, you know, which are very, you know, very little scruples and they're selling large amounts of firearms. They know it's suspicious. They're not raising the alarm. However, they don't actually make that much money on these gun sales. It's actually fairly small, things like a $100 markup on each gun. So, you know, considering how much harm these guns can do, it's kind of not really huge profits. And then you get the gun companies themselves, people like Colt, um, you know, these people making, manufacturing these guns or the big imported companies in the United States, and they make some significant amount of money and they kind of turn a blind eye. They know for a fact that a large amount of their guns are going to Mexico to drug cartels or are going to gang members on street corners or are going to insurgent groups and terrorist groups around the world. These gun companies know that. They can see the numbers and they turn a blind eye. And it was very interesting when I talked to one gun broker for, for a gun company in Eastern Europe who sold AK-47s. And I said, do you feel concerned about your, your guns going, you know, ending up in the wrong hands? And he said, well, I'm not bothered because I know that the sales that I do are legal. So I'm, the sales that I'm doing are legal and you know, they're, they're authorized by the government. 
so I changed said, well, you might not feel um, concerned legally for yourself, but you can feel concerned ethically, um, morally, if your guns are used to murder innocent people. And he looked at me for a second and he said, no. It was honest, but it was honest answer, which is very representative of what people really feel like in the gun industry. They know these guns are used to murder people, but they know if there's if they're legally protected, they can turn a blind eye. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Something that comes across very clearly in your book, actually, is is how uh, the whole area of gun rights activists in the US hugely exacerbates a lot of this problem and this whole defense of the right to bear arms and how that feeds into it. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I came, I tried to come with a certain humility going into the United States um, and into the very deep debate about firearms. And, and I tried to have a respect for, at least for the basic idea of, People that have a right to have guns to you know, defend their family or go hunting, it's their choice. Um, and then we get this area of illegality, which you know, a lot of them are not on board with the idea of you know, very violent cartels having guns. However, you do see um, within the US gun debate, it's impossible not to get into the politics. So you see the NRA, the National Rifle Association, which is an interesting organization, until fairly recently, until the 1970s, it was actually a kind of down the road, you know, we oversee the gun industry and we, you know, support people shooting clubs, but we support gun regulation. But they radicalized in the late 1970s, early 1980s, and they became much more hardline. This idea we don't give it any inch at all with their pressure. So right now, uh, there's this idea of universal background checks. So what I mentioned earlier about private sale loopholes, they could close those by saying any gun sale has to be like a legal gun sale. And you see the the big majority of Americans, the big majority of gun owners, the big majority of conservatives are in favor of that. But the NRA are against it because their ideas, we don't give any inch to gun control or they'll come for all of our guns. Now, as well as that, they've been extremely effective as a political organization. And you see, um, like right now, you know, even when Biden first came in and he had the majority in both houses, they couldn't pass universal background checks because for a lot of, you know, sometimes you get moderate Democrats in districts where there's quite a few gun owners and they have this pressure of the NRA who rates legislators and they see the cost of any gun legislation or challenging the NRA is a lot bigger than any benefit from passing legislation. So you see kind of gridlock and the way that private interests are really influencing this debate. And tying into that, we talk a lot about how the war on illegal drugs has clearly failed, but it's also clear from your book that the war on illegal guns has also failed. Um, Why do you think that is? I mean, is it mainly because of this political dimension or something more than that? First, I think the divisive political environment has made it very hard to have clear legislation about guns. What you discover um, when you get into this is actually, you know, you think of it as being something very, very clear. They've got the Second Amendment. It's actually very, very confused laws all over the place. You go to different cities, different states. They have different regulations. There's even a a town in Georgia where it's illegal not to have a gun. (laughs) So you get kind of these these kind of bizarre things there. 
And what I discovered doing this was there was not even a federal firearms trafficking law. It didn't even exist. They even made a change in that very recently following the first edition of the book being published. However, you also see, I think, with this, this links between the failed war on drugs and the, and, and the issue with guns. So inside the United States itself, and you have where well, there's a lot of violence in cities like Baltimore, St. Louis, New Orleans, you see this flourishing uh, drug market, and that's connected to the kind of failed war on drugs and prohibition, where people can make a lot of money from selling drugs. And then also big access to illegal firearms to protect that money. In Mexico as well, the same thing. So you've got this flourishing, huge amount of money to be made with illegal drugs. And we, you know, the, the Rand Corporation estimates that Americans spend $150 billion every year on illegal drugs. And then also, um, you know, access to massive amounts of firearms. So this kind of combination has been, been really very bad. And now we see kind of worst of both worlds where there's been in Mexico, you know, more than 30,000 murders every year, more than 300,000 murders in the last decade, um, 70% of those with firearms. And in the United States, record levels of drug overdoses, you know, 107,000 people died of overdoses last year. So kind of the worst of both worlds. And your book very much obviously focuses on the huge amount of groundwork you've done both in the United States and Mexico. But how much is the flow of guns more of an international problem as well? So this issue of guns is, is global. I think it's one of the, 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 the issues we face in, in many, many countries. If we look in Western Europe, there's a big issue of firearms. We saw with the terror attacks in 2015 in the Bataclan in Paris and how you know these men went into this club and unleashed with AK-47s. And you can trace one of those AK-47s there back to Yugoslavia. It was used by the Yugoslavian military in the Yugoslavian civil war. It then ended up with a Serbian militia and then it ended up in the black market and then appeared, you know, years later in 2015 in Paris being used in this massacre. Now following that, and this is this still a big issue. Now we've seen a lot of, a lot of murders in Holland around the drug trade there, particularly. Um, we've got issues in the UK, um, in, in London, in, in Liverpool, in various places, uh, with, with firearms deaths or murders. Now, we have seen um, still, since 2015, more of a clamping down on the black market of firearms. So it is a bit more difficult for some of these terrorists to get hold of guns like they could seven, eight years ago. So some of the more recent terror attacks have been with knives and vehicles and so forth. And that does show that you can have law enforcement and you can have societies which try and limit the gun flow more. But it's an ever-present danger. And then we've got new technologies. We've got you know the idea of 3D printing and building kits off the internet. And all of these things could change the game. Although I remember you um, did have some scepticism in the book about actually 3D printing in terms of the quality and lethality of the guns. You know, how, how there's a certain element of sensationalism about, oh my God, people can do unlimited amounts of 3D printing, but actually they're not, quite as dangerous as the sort of factory made things yeah absolutely so there, there was a gun release called the liberator um, a 3d printed gun it's a big publicity uh, and i think a lot of the media made the mistake of buying into the hype oh this has killed gun control everyone can have guns everywhere where really this gun didn't work uh, and it was this kind of idea you could put in a printed plastic gun 
and they tested it. You know, the UK firearms people tested it. They were the, they were concerned about it. They tested it. They realized it was just very, very, you know, it would shoot the person who tried to fire it. And one of the difficulties is the kind of plastics you use for 3D printing are not strong enough to maintain a gun. I mean, people look at the Glock, which is has a lot of plastic, but it's not totally, and it's, it's got very, very hard industrial plastics used in it. However, there is now kind of underground network of people trying to improve on this and having different designs. They still need parts which are not 3D printed, but they're getting less. So now you get guns which can be kind of 80% 3D printed and then have a few things. It's still not that easy that any kind of kid in their bedroom um, can make these things now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say that this is a very depressing topic, and I say that as somebody who works around political corruption, and what keeps me sane through a lot of this is having a very dark sense of humour. Do you ever worry about getting desensitised by violence being steeped in this kind of work, covering these kinds of stories? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I've, uh, you know, I hadn't really seen dead bodies growing up in the UK. Um, you know, one when I worked in a hospital in, in, in the Royal Sussex Hospital as a student, but arriving in Mexico, um, I started to go to these crime scenes and then start to see uh, bodies that have been ripped up with, you know, 100 AK-47 bullets, bodies that have been mutilated. And the first times I go to these crime scenes and be like, wow, this is this is this kind of crazy. And then going to go home and, and, and be dreaming about this. And then after a while, and I see these older crime reporters who'd be like, you know, almost like, you know, relaxed and kind of laughing around these scenes. And then a few years later, I was the same. Um, and you kind of, you know, it's kind of crazy. You go to these crime scenes and then you go off to have breakfast or have lunch or have dinner or whatever. And you do get a bit culture. Now, what still sometimes it breaks through. Sometimes you're, you're at these crime scenes, you see the body doesn't seem to mean much, just seeing a dead body. And then a car will come and there'll be a wife or a daughter and they'll be breaking down in tears. And then one um, story I, I covered in this book was of a, uh, a young girl in Honduras who was hit by a stray bullet. And it hit her in the stomach, but it went through her spine at 12 years old. And she didn't, she was in a wheelchair and I met her when she was 14. And I said, how school and stuff. And she said she'd given up going to school because there was no wheelchair ramps. She was in a very poor neighborhood in Honduras. And and that really struck me. She said, what do you do all day? I sit sit on a mattress and watch TV. And that kind of image suddenly really struck me. Suddenly you kind of, you know, burst into tears, get sent about these things. And she passed away. you know, since since I did that interview, she passed away in 2020 or 2021 when she was 17 years old. So the, these things, suddenly the kind of humanity can burst through, but you can often forget, I think, um, being a crime journalist or, or, or a war journalist or whatever, kind of get a bit desensitized. Your, your body shuts down, your kind of mind shuts down to the emotions to try and keep sane while you're doing it. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Ewan. Ewan's book, Blood Gun Money, How America Arms Gangs and Cartels is a fascinating and comprehensive read and is out now in an updated paperback edition. And thank you for joining us, listeners. We'll be back soon with another edition. And if you found the podcast interesting, remember you can support us on Patreon from as little as £3 a month. You'll be supporting us to make shows like The Bunker, Oh God, What Now? and the latest series of Arthur Snell's Doomsday Watch. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bunker Daily was presented by Seth Tavo. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers 
for Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Original music by Jade Bailey. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>